0: Scripture today comes from First John chapter 2 verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. And uh, welcome once again. If you have a Bible this morning, take it out. First John chapter 2, as Margaret has read for us um, this morning. I have the privilege and the responsibility of uh, bringing a word this morning from the Bible about raising teenagers. So as you can tell, uh, um, I'm not old enough to have raised my own teenagers. I have about as much parenting experience as most teenagers, uh, which would be very little. But I do um, come to you this morning, not with experience, but uh, on the authority of God's Word and with years of um, working with dozens and dozens of students from a totally different perspective um, as, as parenting. I've walked with uh, many of you as you have attempted to raise uh, your kids, seen the trials and the tough times that you've gone through in raising them. And I've also uh, been with many of you on the other side of that as you've seen them grow into godly adults who love Jesus. And I look to many of you as examples of what great uh, parenting is. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take and we're going to spend a few minutes looking from First John as to what he would say about the role of parenting um, in today's world. You see, the youth ministry at Grace, what, what, I, what I lead here at Grace and many of, you, many of you are a part of, is designed to uh, specifically help you in discipling your students. Seeing teenagers, those, uh, the Youth Ministry of Grace is 6th grade through 12th grade, but seeing them uh, grow into godly adults. Because raising teenagers, as many of you know and are experiencing, is not an easy task. Uh, raising kids, for that matter, is most likely for many of you, you look and say, yeah, it's not easy at all. And I know for quite a few of you, maybe you, you've walked in here this morning, and you are burdened, maybe, for your own kid, they're a teenager, maybe they're a little kid, but you're burdened for them because um, of the, the direction or a way that you see them going. Are you coming here this morning, and many of you uh, work with teenagers uh, at schools or in the community, and you're burdened for other teenagers. Maybe you walk in here this morning and you, as a parent, you just had a knockdown, dragout drag-out this weekend with your teenager and you're like, I'm sitting beside you only because I'm supposed to, but I really don't want to right now. And you're wondering, man, how am I going to keep doing this? See, because living in today's society um, is is tough enough sometimes, much less when you're trying to navigate a teenager through uh, puberty, through uh, cultural pressure, uh, while they're trying to figure out who they are. So this morning, as we look into this, there is pressure in our society to conform to the way our society says to be. And therefore, our priority and view of success for the life of our teenager, maybe you've got a little kid and you can start there, the life of your small child, priorities and success must this morning be redefined. We're going to see... From John, uh, how he redefines it. But first, just from my perspective, let me give you uh, as as the youth pastor here at Grace, what my view of success is. Now, I, I would love it. I'm not gonna. Lie. I would love to see 15 uh, year old mini Billy Graham's running around here like like that. That would that would bless me. Right Or to see theologians just, just popping up everywhere uh, at 13, at 12, at, at, at 17. But the fact is, that's probably Charles Spurgeon. Many of you have heard of him. He began pastoring a church at 19. Maybe it was at 16. And that church grew in just a few years to 10,000. That's probably not going to be any of you. It could be as a teenager. But my goal for a teenager is that they graduate high school, go to college, and after college... Love Jesus more then and be devoted to him more then than they were in the eighth grade. See, because the teenage years, parenting in the teenage years, youth ministry in the teenage years is much like an IRA, right? You you put a little bit in at a time, right? And you don't see much fruit most of the time. If you look at it every single day, you're going to think, man, this thing's not growing very much at all. You might have some setbacks. You might have some situations where it doesn't grow at all. But then if you just keep putting in day after day after day, week after week, month after month, and what happens over the time that that, that thing has had time to grow, you look, and after years you say, wow, this, this thing's really matured and, 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 and become something. That's very much uh, how I view youth ministry here at Grace. Success must be defined Uh, long-term. But success must be uh, redefined if you're going to parent a teenager in the 21st century. I'm going to give you some stats this morning. They're not going to be on the screen. I I forgot to get them up there. But some stats that that are pretty staggering. As a parent this morning, if you're sitting here and you have a kid who's a little kid or you have a teenager who's about to graduate high school, these stats are important. And they should, I hope, Jar you enough to realize that success for your teenager must be redefined. Here's what it is. Depending on where you read, Time magazine says 60%, LifeWay research says 70, some independent researchers say 80, but depending on where you read, between 60 and 80% of students who attended youth group regularly in high school drop out when they graduate. To give you some perspective, Three-quarters of those who regularly attend a youth group in high school will drop out after high school. Now, some of those drop out for good. Some of them drop out only through the college years. And there's two main reasons. The researchers have found two main factors as to why they drop out. Here they are. Their parents didn't invest in their spiritual life Or see that as the primary objective for their kid. That's number one. The second one is no one, including parents, invested in their life spiritually. So in other words, they attended a youth group, they attended church. But yet parent or leader or anyone else from the church really didn't personally invest in their life. And three quarters of those who regularly attended drop out. According to uh, Lifeway Research, um, they, they did the, the, one of these studies, and they found that two-thirds of those who dropped out after high school actually come back. I mean, that's still, I think, too much drop-off from my perspective, but this two-thirds came back, and there were several reasons as to why either they came back or the students who continued uh, involvement in the church and saw Jesus as their primary objective, their Several reasons as to why people either didn't fall off or came back. And here are the reasons. The parents of those students who who fell off and came back or who didn't leave the church emphasized that students walk with Christ and were engaged in their spiritual development as a teenager. Now that's a very broad statement, but notice it doesn't say they brought them to church. They were engaged in their spiritual development as a teenager. They saw it as a primary objective. The second reason out of three is they saw the pastor's sermons were relevant to their life. So they came in, they heard a message from God's word that was actually, that meant something to them. And the third one, and I think this is one of the most important, at least one adult outside of their parents made a significant investment in their life spiritually. Significant investment. And that percentage of those who come back to the church or don't fall off raises As it's more than one. So, in other words, if there are two or three or four or five people investing in someone spiritually, the chances of them walking away from the faith or seeing church involvement as something that's not important is uh, low. Why? Because raising teenagers is not something that, as parents, you can simply just do on your own. It's not something that the church or or any other organization is supposed to do themselves. It's something that we do together. Let me just say this. This is another reason why our student ministry at Grace is centered on the preaching and teaching of God's word. And through opening up God's word together in live groups. Because events are fun and we have a really good time at those. But events, uh, uh, cool feelings and and fads, they don't transform. But God's word Does. And that's why we focus our time there. Reading from the same stats earlier, and I'll be done with the stats because some of you think that I think stats, and I'm like, man, this is good. Some think this is boring stuff. But you may come in here this morning. Jerry said a couple of weeks ago, as parents, you're, you're, you are the primary person who is supposed to disciple your kid. Maybe you hear that and you think, Why? Like, like, what's the purpose in that? Some of the same stats and my experience here over the years shows that, despite what you may think, the number one influencer in the life of a teenager is you. As a parent, it's not coaches, it's not friends, it's not pastors. Instead, it is you. You are the primary influencer in the life of your kid. There's reasons why you run your household. What you say goes. But at the same time, what you do and what you focus on speaks volumes. And if you're the primary influencer, if you're the main influencer in your home, then your primary responsibility is leading your kids toward Christ. Toward what I mean, maybe they're already a Christian, but your primary responsibility is to lead them toward Jesus. So this morning, I want you to be able to leave from here thinking, what do I need to do in order to view success from God's perspective. How do I walk away this morning viewing success for my kids from God's perspective? And if you're in here this morning and you're not raising teenagers, but you have kids, or you're in here and you have a grown adult kids, or, or neither, you walk in here and, and you don't have either one of those, this message will apply to your life as you will be able to identify what you value most. Because John shows us in just a moment that what we value most is what we put our time, energy, energy and significance in. So let's look at it. John 1, excuse me, 1 John 2, as Margaret has read for us, he says, "Uh, don't love the world or the things in the world. See, in 1 John, we have a clash of mindsets. One is focused on the things of the world that we'll get into in just a moment, and one is focused on the things of God, the will of God. John is writing to Christians who are facing a world with a radically different mindset. Very similar to today. John's audience, he wants to protect them from that mindset that is taking over and trying to push the things of God out. Listen to the world that John's Christians are living in. They denied Jesus as the son of God. They denied that Christ had come in the flesh. This was the mindset of the people in John's day. They denied the authority of Jesus' commands. They denied their own sinfulness. They denied salvation through Christ. They denied righteous conduct as as something they are supposed to do. They denied the responsibility to live as Jesus lived. And they denied the authority of the writers of Scripture. And you think, Ada, why would you list those things? Because that is awfully a lot like the world we live in today. The world we're living in today is not going to see the things of God and accept them as they are. Instead, many people today deny that they are sinful and in need of a savior. Many times that is offensive to people because they think, why do you need to tell me if I'm bad? Because I'm not. John is, is writing to people who live in a world much like we do. So let's look at what he says. Don't love the world. Now, when I first read that, I thought, John, what do you mean? I thought God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John, what do you mean? Don't love the things in the world. Does this mean I can't like, love things that I enjoy? Right? I, I enjoy eating sushi. Does that mean I can't do that? I enjoy watching sports. Does that mean I, I can't do that? That's not what John's talking about. John says, Don't love the things in the world. What John is saying is, he is warning against a, a, a system that is devoted to things opposed to God. Say, Aidan, what do you mean a system of things that are opposed to God? Our, our world today, right now, is controlled. Uh, it's, it's essentially controlled by God, but, but God is, has allowed a Satan to, to sort of uh, uh, rule our world. The Bible tells us this. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says, in other words, Satan controls the world's mindset and he controls the world's systems and values. He would also say in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded, their mind, blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. John would say later in, his, in this same book in 1 John 5, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Listen to me, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that what is accepted and celebrated in our world is diametrically opposed to God and his character. It's very much so opposed. So what would John say to do? We have have one truth in today's sermon. The title of the message, the, the main truth is choose the right love. Choose the right love. John says if you love the world, it pushes out your love for God. The world that John speaks of is any mindset or behavior that's contrary to God's word. So let's just go ahead and set the foundation. Any mindset or behavior or value system that's contrary to God's word is what John says is the world. You may say, then Adrian, I'm good because I want to do what God's word says. But love for the world means also to love anything else more than you love Christ. See, Jesus had something to say about this in the book of Matthew. Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. Either you will love one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. The problem is we've been created to love God first and foremost, but oftentimes love for something else pushes out or pushes down our love for God. John says, don't love the world or the things in the world. What are those things? He lists them in three categories. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So let's go over those for a moment. John says, desires of the flesh. This is an outlook oriented only toward yourself. In other words, this is ultimate rebellion. This is you saying, I can do what I want despite what God says or despite what God thinks. I do what I want. Any parents in the room ever had a rebellious kid? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my mom and dad did. Uh, My brother was terrible. I was an angel, but uh, (laughs) but but this this is the ultimate rebellion, right? You do what you want, despite what God says or despite what God does. This means your main focus is yourself. Desire of the excuse me, desire of the flesh. You focus on you, and that's all that matters. Which means it could also mean an over desire. You want something more than you should. To desire material gain is not sinful, but to uh, over-desire becomes greed. To want and enjoy food is not sinful, but to overeat is. To want uh, something that is not yours, or to want something, excuse me, is not sinful, to want something that's not yours can be covetousness. So let me ask you a question for you to be able to think, and and not not just now, but the rest of the week. Is there a part of your life that is off-limits to God? Is there something you say, okay, like I, I give over this part of my life to God and I'm okay with that, but this part of my life, no, 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 no I do what I want. I call the shots. I, I, though I wouldn't tell people this, this, this is, this is me. I do what I want in this area of my life. Because many times as Christians, we don't look at God and say, I do what I want, but there are parts of our life that are off limits to him. Is there a part of your life that's off limits to God? Second thing John says is desires of the eyes. This makes up the world. You see something and want it, though you know you shouldn't have it or be a part of it or or take part in it. So in other words, John says, what is that thing or those things that captivate your heart? What's that thing that that controls your mind? Because whatever captivates your heart and controls your mind will drive you to do whatever it takes to get it. John says, "What, what is that thing? The desires of the eyes can refer to sexual lust and deviancy. But it's not only referred to that, but that's one thing it can be. This is something that drives you mad until you get it. What is that thing? And the pride of life, the third category, John says, is is boasting in what you have or what you do. What you have, what you've accomplished, who you know, your social influence, that's what you live for. The pride of life is reflected in whatever status symbol you have that, that you gain your influence, excuse me, that you gain your identity from. For some of you, it's, it's money. You gain your identity, your sense of value, your sense of worth based on how much money you have. For others, it's status. It's, it's for others, it's accomplishments. For some, it's academic achievement. You gain your identity, you gain your value, you gain your significance in this world based on something other than Christ and you take pride in that thing. You say, Adrian, how can I identify what that thing is? What you spend your time, money, and energy on shows your heart's true desire. What you spend your time, your money, your energy, you look and think, what what over the last six months, over the last six years, do I spend my time on. Or another way you could ask that is, what do you live for? What is that one thing that you live for and without it, you feel like life is not worth living? What is that? Because many times, things that we should enjoy, it's not that that they're bad things, they're just good things that we've turned into God things. They're things that that God has given us to enjoy, but instead we enjoy them more than we enjoy Him. And then what happens is, we get wrapped up in this mindset that John says, don't be a part of. This happens to everybody. It happens, it happens daily. It can happen to you personally, but parents, let me speak for a second, it can happen to you for your kids. What is it you want them to live for? You say, what what, what what do you mean? Let me ask you a question. We use the word uh, uh, glory uh, when we talk about God, but glory is a word that uh, points to what someone is known for. When I say LeBron James, his glory is... Okay, two people knew. LeBron James' glory is basketball. When I say Michael Phelps, his glory is? Uh, when I say, um, oh man, somebody give me one. When I say, uh, Dolly Parton. yeah, Dolly Parton. It's Dollywood, right? Uh, so so, so when, you, when you say something, somebody's glory is what they're known for. So let me ask you this question. All right, and, and, and you'll know the answer, like it's an obvious answer, but I want you to really think about what the answer is. What is that one thing you honestly want your kid to be known for? If you're a parent, it'd be real easy to give a churchy answer there. I, this is not for you to, this may be for you and, and, and your spouse to discuss, but what is that one thing that you want your kid to be known for? See, this is why success for your kids and teenagers must be redefined. Here's what I mean. If success is only college and a good job, though those things are very important, but if that is only success, you are shorting your kid and who God has created them to be. You are, without realizing it, telling them what matters most is if they go to college and they get a good career. If that is only your goal. Now, I'm going to speak to something for just a moment, and it's not intended for guilt, but rather just for personal evaluation. Many of you spend exorbitant amounts of time in sports, uh, um, uh, for for sports equipment, spending entire uh, uh, weekends, multiple weekends out of the year. Nothing wrong with doing that. Many of you spend loads of time on your kids' extracurricular activities. You go and you go and you go. And life is often stressful because you realize you've got to go again. And a walk with Christ, though it can happen, seems oftentimes like an afterthought. Because everything else seems to take precedence over your relationship with Jesus. And many of you are not doing that intentionally. You're not saying, yeah, yeah, I don't want you to walk with Christ. It's not that, but just where you spend your time and your energy shows where your heart is and it shows your kids where your heart for them is. So uh, what happens? You say, hey, can it all happen? Like, can't they be involved in sports and clubs, etc., and still walk with Christ? Absolutely. Like, we want that. Because it's in those areas that you can influence people for Christ, but parents, it starts with you. If you seem to place all your time, value, and importance on other things, how will your child ever know that walking with Christ is your primary objective for them? So what do we do? We redefine success. Here's another question for you. Um, is walking with Christ the main thing you hope your teenager is known for? Is, is, is that it? Again, you, you, know, you know the answer should be, well, yeah. Yeah. But is that? Do you spend time hoping that you cultivate a walk with Christ for your teenager? Maybe you can ask this question and and, and reflect on it. If everything else in your teenager's life came up short, grades, sports, whatever, but they were walking with God, could you be satisfied that's not an out for teenagers to say, I'm not doing homework because I'm walking with God. No, no, no. Because here's the thing. I don't think as Christians, we should come up short. I believe Christians should pursue excellence in everything we do. We should try to make the best grades. We should try to be the best musicians. We can be the best artists, the best speakers, be good business people, but doing so because God has gifted us in those areas, not doing so because we're trying to look for our own end. So, if everything in your teenager's life came up short, but they were walking with God, came up short of maybe your expectation, would you be okay with that? Because God has gifted us in certain areas and He expects us to use those areas for His glory. But we're just not to live for those things alone. You don't live for your job, you don't live for your kids. You don't live for the amounts of money you make. You have been given those opportunities to advance God's kingdom. And when we understand that our identity first is not in what we can gain or what we accomplish, but our identity first is that we are a child of God. You can live with hope, you can live with assurance, and you can strive to make the best grades with freedom knowing those grades don't define you. You can strive uh, to to make uh, money and make profit knowing that that profit does not define you. You can, uh, teenagers, be good on your sports team, but you just know that that sport does not make you who you are. See, God doesn't want us to not pursue our goals. He's given us those goals. He's given us those desires, but we just have to realize that those are secondary and walking with him is primary and parents for your kids their walk with Christ is primary over any other thing. See, because when you find your identity as a child of God, then you don't have to worry about finding your identity, living for anything else. But it starts with you. And here's the thing, I've talked with loads of students. I mean, I mean, I mean many who, who, who live and honestly, like, they want to live for Christ. I'm going to give teenagers the benefit of the doubt but because that, that's what I do. I think many want to live for Jesus, but they've shared with me that it's not a particular sin that kind, of, that kind of keeps them down. The hardest thing for them that they've shared with me is just living in a world that is so opposed to Jesus. That's one of the hardest things. I've talked with countless teenagers uh, who say just the onslaught of pressure. Cultural pressure to conform is the most difficult thing that they face because we have two competing mindsets. John says one's of the world, one is of God. And parents, this is where your influence matters most. For a teenager to walk with God, they must first know that their identity is not found in anything else. It's only found in Jesus. And they then must know that Christ is their number one objective from you. They must know that. So yes, say, Adrian, what, what can I do as a parent? First is this. Emulate. Emulate the life you want for your kids. What kind, of kid, what kind of life do you want your kid to live? Then live that. Because on more than one occasion, we, we turn into who our parents are. The way our, the, the life our parents live is the life we end up living. So emulate the life you want for your kids. Oftentimes when you do that and you live a, a grace-based, Christ-centered life, it's going to end up looking more attractive than anything the world's going to show because when you live a life in grace, when, 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 when you have a household based on grace and a household centered on God's word and they know that they don't have to achieve for you to love them but rather you love them based on who they are and your goal for them is for them to walk with Christ, that's going to be more attractive than going into a world and feeling like you have to add up to everything. So emulate the life you want for your kids. The second thing is this, make church or youth group involvement a non-negotiable. Do that. Why? I've talked with, with several parents in the past who say, you know what? Like, it's like, I want my kid to be in church, and sometimes they do, but I, like, I'm afraid I'm going to push them away if I force them to go to church. If I make them go, I'm afraid I'm going to push them away, and essentially you're worried, and I understand that you're worried that you're going to push them away from the Lord because you don't want to make them feel like they have to come to church like they're going to the school disciplinarian or anything like that. You don't want that. Think about this, if, if you give your teenager the choice and they choose not to be involved and you allow them because you don't force it, you are displaying an apathetic attitude saying church involvement for you doesn't matter, so it's definitely not going to matter to them. Make that a non-negotiable. Think of it, you, you, if you give your teenagers the choice to go to school, they're probably not going to go. Some will, the, the nerds, they'll They'll go. Some won't, if you give them the choice to come to practice, or to go to practice. Of course they want to play in the game, but they don't want to go to practice. No, nobody typically does, then church, youth group involvement shouldn't all of a sudden be the option that they have to opt out of. The reason church involvement matters is because your kids need more than just you to raise them. I mentioned that earlier. Your kids need more than you to raise them in, in all aspects of life. If they're struggling in math, as one day, if my kid struggles in math, I will send them to a tutor. All right? Because there's no way I'll be able to help them be on sixth grade. All right? That, that, that's the end. Right there. Now, if they want to work on sentences and they want to write a paper, I'll, I'll help them till, till, till college. But if they're going to work on that, no. You send your kid to, to a tutor if they're struggling in a subject. You send them to a coach to work on a swing or to work on their shot. You, you send them to, to musicians that to help them develop in that area. And in the same way, uh, you, you, you will not and can't simply alone raise your kid toward maturity in Christ. It's not going to happen. You're the primary influencer. But they need more than just you. So how can you do that? Two, two ways. Two ways, if you're a parent of a teenager in here, two ways that can happen. One, and, and, and the easiest one, and not I'm going to say not the most effective, but the easiest is, is our youth group meets on Sunday nights at 5. We meet over at the youth building. Uh, it's really easy to find. Youth group meets in youth building. We, we, we meet over there at 5 o'clock on Sunday night. And that's one step where they can kind of get plugged in. But the next one is this. It is, I think, imperative. And I mean this. It is imperative that your teenager is in a life group. We have uh, loads of great life group leaders in this youth ministry. We have some that are, that, that are about to come on and, and start new life groups. We have many life groups that are currently going on. And let me just say, what I hear from them is, 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 is students who say, I can't wait to get there because I'm opening up and this person is helping me in my walk with Christ. And I hear leaders say, man, I love this because I really feel like I'm making a difference in the life of a teenager. It is imperative that you teenager's in a life group. They meet all throughout the week. Some meet on Sundays, some meet throughout the week. But if you're a parent of a teenager and they're not in a life group, the one thing you can do today is take your connection card if you if you haven't already turned it in. If you have, just tear off a part of your bulletin and write it on there too. But say, I want my kid in a life group and tell your name and tell theirs and give a contact, give contact information. Because it is imperative that, that, that they're in a life group or a part of people, a small group of people who will help them walk with God and navigate this life along. With you. Now on the flip side, I want to say this. Church involvement, youth group involvement does not guarantee a godly student. If you say, I brought them to church every single Sunday, every single time the church doors were open, and, 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 and look what happened, and, and they're off. That's not going to guarantee anything, but I will say this because I stand behind it 100%. It's, it's Bringing them to church is a lot like putting food in front of a kid who says, I don't want to eat. Right? They may choose and say, I'm not, you put it in front of them and they say, I'm not going to do it. whatever reason. I don't want to eat. I don't want to eat. Eventually, what's going to happen? They'll get hungry. And eventually, they'll end up eating because they know it actually is good for them, and it tastes good. So when you bring them to a place where God's Word is explained and taught and put them around like-minded people, it's not going to guarantee anything, but it's better than just saying, well, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. So John would say, choose the right love. And he would say, the result the result of choosing the right love, he tells us in verse 17, is that it lasts forever. The result of choosing the right love is that it lasts forever. The world, he says, is passing away. It'll be finished one day. Right? The world we live in will one day no longer be like it is now. But he says there's one way that you can live forever. There's one way that you can rest. There's one way that you can find peace and that is to abide which means to rest, remain, stay, to abide in Christ and do what he says. Say, this sounds simple. Well, it sounds simple when you look at your kid and say, do what I say. And they still don't. It's simple. We, we look at what Jesus says and we do it. It's, it's, in theory, it's not difficult, but oftentimes it shows that it is hard to do. But to abide simply means obeying what he says because it matters for eternity obeying jesus doesn't just make a difference today it makes a difference for your soul's eternity james would say in james chapter one but be doers of the word and not just hearers only we do what god says we don't just hear it because what's going to happen is when we attempt to to satisfy ourselves with things of this world they're going to get old many of you have experienced that many of you are experiencing that sports they get tiring and it no longer satisfies like it once did. I've talked with students who say, I play sports, but like, I just don't enjoy it anymore, but I feel like I need to. Sports get old. Uh, money will no longer provide the happiness that it once did. Career success will no longer be what it was. These things are temporal, and they will only satisfy for a brief moment. And when you look for them to come through, guess what? They, they won't. Why? Because those things, though they are good, are an imitation of what we're supposed to place our value in. I, I was in, um, last Saturday, uh, Whitney and I went over to Asheville and there's a, a place down uh, close to Arden, I guess, that's, uh, that sells shoes and they sell scrubs and stuff and, and, and she was going to get some scrubs. And I walked in the store and I'm, I'm walking through the store and they have some Carhartt and stuff, so I'm over there looking at it and, and this lady uh, yelled and said, excuse me, sir. And I, I don't look turn around because I'm, she's talking to somebody else. And then she says a little louder, excuse me, sir, I turn around. And she says, can you tell me where the jackets are? And I said, well, they're in here. Um, and, and she's like, okay, can you help me with something else? And I said, ma'am, I, I don't work here, but I'll be more than glad to. Um, and she's like, oh, oh, I, I thought you did. Ten minutes later, I'm standing at the, uh, at the dressing room area. And this guy walks up, and he kind of looks around. He looks in the door, and he says, hey, Do you care if I go in there? And I'm like, I'm like, man, you go right ahead. And, and he said, he says, uh, he, he says, well, do you, do you work here? And I said, no, but if somebody asked, just tell them somebody who works here told you you could do it. And, uh, and, and he was like, okay. So he goes in there. Um, and, and then it was funny. Cause I got to hear this interesting conversation. He and his wife across the door uh, and they weren't really holding anything back. So that was kind of interesting. But, uh, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm wearing this lanyard. It's, it's one that we, we got at castle called b Tell. i am wearing this lanyard. And it's got keys on it. And I'm wearing it around my neck. And I realized at that point, that's what it is, okay? That, that's, that's what's going on. So we go back to the Asheville outlets uh, up the road there, and we're, we walk into a store, and I'm wearing it around my neck one more time because that's just it's better than putting it in my pocket, and, and I'm walking through uh, the Banana Republic. I'm walking through there, and this lady says, excuse me, sir, can you help me with these boxers over here? And I look at her, and I said, I said, I'll help you with them, but I don't work here, sorry. And she looked at me and then kind of, okay. And I thought that was going to be it. And I went to one more store. And this time I put the keys in my pocket. But the lanyard's still hanging out. And, uh... This guy, it's, it's in the Levi's store. They were having a crazy good sell-on jeans, but sadly, all the my sizes, they weren't available. And, and, and I was back there looking through the clearance stuff right where the doors are that you go into the, uh, to the, to the dressing room, and this guy comes out, and he's just excited about his jeans. So he comes out, and the door slams behind him, and, and he looks at his girlfriend, wife, somebody, and he says, how do they look? And she's like, they look good, and they have a conversation, and then he turns around and tries to open the door and realizes it's locked. Well, here I am, you know, kneeling down right here, looking through some jeans and the lanyard's hanging out, and I I see it out of the corner of my eye. I see it, and and he says, uh, he's he's kind of he looks around. He's like, hey, hey, can you let me back in? And I I was like, I'm I'm never holding these keys again. And 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 I I look at him and say, man, I don't work here, but I tell you what, last time that happened to me, I just slid underneath the door. (laughs) So what does he do? There's about that much room underneath there. And he looks around and he starts crawling underneath the door. And I, I feel like I had more influence on people's apparel shopping that day uh, than, than I ever will in my entire life. I say that um, to honestly say what they were looking for. You, you, the, the, every time that somebody in one of those stores was looking for something, what were they looking for? They were looking for someone who worked there. They were looking for the real thing, right? They, they were not looking for someone who didn't have that. Instead, what did I offer to them? Really, really. Not. I mean, I actually gave them some really good advice. But, but what, what, I, what I offered to them was, was honestly a cheap imitation of the real thing. I, I, I was not the real person that could help them. They needed someone who could actually help them. And, that, and that's, a, that's a funny story to show us, though, that, that oftentimes we put our hope, we're looking for help, we're looking for purpose, we're looking for peace. And many times we put them in something that's really not actually going to help us. We put our hope in something that is temporal. And here's the deal. To place your hope in anything other than Christ's love and the gospel is to place it in a cheap imitation of the real thing. Other things promise what they cannot give. Only God will give what he promises. See, John says these other things are secondary, but following the commands of Jesus are primary. So when your identity is wrapped up in being a child of God, guess what? It lasts forever. You don't have to search day to day of what you're going to find your value in. So what do you do? John says, choose the right love. It's easy to live for the moment. It's easy to conform to the world's way of thinking and measuring success. But to John and the other writers of scripture, living for the moment took a back seat to living in light of eternity. See, because everything else gives you hope within this world. But listen, only Jesus can give you hope beyond it. Jesus is the only one who overcame death, defeated the power of hell. Not for you to live for a cheap imitation, but for you to, in gratitude, live to praise him. The world can't give you what you need or what it promises or what will last. Only Jesus can do that. Many of you live and you're searching for purpose. Only Jesus can give you the ultimate purpose for your life. Many of you live looking for peace. You're missing something. Only Jesus can give you the peace that you seek. You look for security. Only he can give you the security of what you desire most. You live for acceptance and you look for it. Only Jesus can give you the unconditional acceptance that you wish you had. And many of you, when battling through situations, you look for for what's going to get you through that. Only Jesus can give you the joy in the midst of pain and suffering. Why? Because in John sixteen thirty three, he himself said this, I've said these things to you that you may uh, have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome what? The world. Not your job, not your career, not your kids' sports, not their grades. Jesus is the only one who overcomes this world. Grace, this is, th- this is what gives us hope. Parents, this is how you fight strong to raise godly teenagers. Because you're battling and you're struggling and you don't know what to do. You don't need to only rely on principles, though they're good. You need to rely on a person. And his name is Jesus. You need to remember that if, that if Jesus has saved your kid's soul, he who started a good work in them will what? Bring it to completion. You need to rely not on your own ability to raise your kids, but on the hope that only Jesus gives and those around you. So how do you practically invest? And then I'm done in your teenager spiritually. First thing is pray. It sounds simple, it sounds like that's what you're supposed to say, but but it's one of the greatest things you can do. My my mom, every day she, she took me to school from middle school through through high school until I could drive, and she prayed every single day. She's not a theologian, uh, she she she's not a, a Bible teacher. But every day she prayed and she proved to me what having a real consistent prayer life looked like and that it was possible. She would ask me what she could pray for and she would tell me later that day, Adrian, I prayed for that today. Your kids knowing that you're praying for them is one of the most powerful things you can do for them. Second is this, I mentioned earlier, model what you want from them. Model it. What life do you want for them? Model that life. Teach your kids the Bible. And sometimes that, that if you have the gift of really opening God's word up and teaching it, do that. If you don't, read scripture with them. I have a little scripture book that, that we used when I was a little kid, and I can still remember. I won't try to quote it in front of everybody, but I can still remember three verses from that that really made an impact on my life. And it was just this little colorful scripture book. Read the Bible to them. Pour that into them. And the last thing is this. Don't give up. Even when you want to, even when it feels like there's nothing else you could do, don't give up. And if you need help, as Jerry said earlier, you're like, look, I don't know really where to turn. Then call us. That's that's one of the primary reasons we're here. Because you, you can't raise your kid on your own, but we want to help you do that because we want them to grow to be godly people. Don't give up. Let's pray together.